You are listening to OP Breakdowns. I am Charles, also known as Omnis, and I'm here with Danny, a.k.a. IR Smart Like Rock. My rock star. What's going on, Danny? Uh, doing well. Just had 4th of July, you know, had some family time, hanging out, you know, just you know, living the dream. Awesome. Well, I'm happy to be recording with you. Listeners, this is going to be something a little different. Obviously, you heard breakdowns in the uh, in the title. If you haven't listened to the first episode of season three, what Danny and I are doing are doing these really concise breakdown episodes. We're going to pick really specific topics and give it somewhere in the range of 20 to 30 minutes. And Danny and I are going to are going to dive in. So, Danny, are you excited to get into this first one? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like it speaks to my soul, particularly if I'm playing Brotherhood right now. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I think we I think we ship it when it comes to you and, uh, you know, Asteroid M. Yeah. Uh, so what we're going to talk about today uh, is breaking down Mothership and Asteroid M, how we play them, when you play them, what to do against them, just like kind of the key thoughts and things we want to do about it. Absolutely. Two, I mean, really significant cards, right? They're the kind of the main card of two of the strongest attrition affiliations in the game, but they... They can be used a lot of different ways. So before we dive into specifics, I'm curious, Danny, what are your just general thoughts on these two cards? I would actually say they're affiliation-defining cards because there's only agree. two of them. And what they do is completely different to what a lot of other affiliations can do. Yeah, it's these cards, I think as soon as we saw the first one hit for Black Order, we were like, that's going to be crazy. And then when Brotherhood got one, it was like, okay, this is delivering, you know, uh, Magneto across the board. They were immediately out the gate, very powerful cards. And I, I love movement shenanigans. Like any any shenanigan that gets me to a spot where I probably shouldn't be, I love it. I love that stuff. So that's why I felt like this would be a perfect starter for us because it kind of hits on your desire to annihilate and my desire to reposition in ridiculous ways. Yeah. Uh, so I actually wanted to talk about this card because I think they are very interesting because I think there is a very straightforward way to play them. And I think there's a very subtle way to play them. Um, and essentially it comes down to, do you want to be aggressive or do you want to try to hold the card back uh, to try to do something else later in the game? And it's not an easy decision, right? Like, I mean, I can certainly see why someone, if you can get the attrition train rolling right away, right? And you have got a dazed character middle of round one, that's a big deal. But you are trading off the opportunity cost of being able to totally reposition your most powerful character to a perfect spot in round three or four to like close out a game or bypass someone's, you know, Corvus got Shuri pushed and then Enchantress bowed and then, you know, Black Panther pushed and is just out in the middle of nowhere. And if you still had it, like you could just ignore all of that and come right back. Yeah, like these cars are so interesting to me, and this is what actually attracted me to Brotherhood um, out of playing X Men. No offense. Uh, is <laughs> I, that, actually I am offended, but go on. Yeah, <laughs> uh, is that this card essentially lets you have a very dynamic play because you can technically play it both in Magneto and Mystique, and you play them differently with each of them too. Um, because I feel like with Mystique. I tend to save it for a little later when I need to rescue someone who's getting blown up or something's happening to them. And I need to teleport a big character uh, over to them to try to help them out or try to reposition on like a, a B or a D. 
Uh, or if I'm playing Magneto, I am trying to get rid of someone who is bothering me, like a black cat, a voodoo, like a character who is going to warp the gameplay around them. Well, let's let's dive in more into some of the key characters that make this stuff work. Um, obviously, when we're talking about Brotherhood, like Magneto's the big boy. Yeah. Do you, uh, how often do you feel like this is played to reposition Magneto? Is it like 80%? Is it 90%? Should we playing, be thinking about the others more? Yeah. If I'm playing Magneto, I would probably say a solid 80%. It's probably to reposition Magneto. But there's always situations where if you don't have to, don't. Um, this is where like a mystique deception, pulling someone close to Magneto so you can save it for later, because it's such like a game changing card that if you don't have to play it, just don't, right? Like it'll warp the game later. It'll do things other that your opponent will be afraid of you doing it later. And they'll know like no matter what they do, there's always this back pocket question of sure i can push magneto but what if he teleports afterward right like is it better to go after someone else is it better to go after the character who he's going to teleport off of instead yeah yeah you are you are not wrong but i think like i'm kind of surprised i mean i know that uh mystique doesn't have quite as interesting of a leadership um you know magneto has probably one of the most fun leaderships in the game so i don't really blame people for wanting to wanting to play it because it's great but with her speed and ability to like move and like drop her token somewhere. Um, I could see all sorts of situations where, you know, you end up with um, mystique double moves to get over to a different B on the other side of the table. And then, you know, asteroid M's toad over there. And then he moves over and like drops a, um, you know, drops the token somewhere. And there's just, it could set up such crazy maneuverability that it really probably could be played on all of them. Yeah. Um, I think in Mystique, it's a card of opportunity. It is you see some way to change how the turn is going to play out. And so you're going to tell like a someone, like you're playing cubes or something, someone's taking like one or two damage. And you're like, hmm, I could probably have Rogue teleport and just punch this person and just take the cube from them. And Rogue is fine with that. Yep. And I know... Um, what happens a lot is people try to create a situation where like Juggernaut destroys some terrain and then moves up and now he spreads around some power, which then allows like Mystique to run to a position to then, you know, summon Magneto with Asteroid M. Um, but when I was playing Brotherhood, which is obviously not as much as you, there would be a lot of time where I would just like early activation, like Toad or Gambit or Rogue or something would just move up onto one of the central points and like grab an extract or something. Mm-hmm. And then if anybody attacked them, then I'm like, oh, yeah. all right. And then Magneto will join the party. And um, I think we should also mention there's a downside to the card, right? Yes. Um, and the downside is that the character who is being teleported cannot be holding an objective. And that's like a key difference there. The person being teleported to can hold an objective, but the person who is currently moving as part of the card cannot be holding an objective. Uh, That's something people uh, not necessarily forget, but it's like a nuance in the card. Yeah, at Adepticon, the one round that I played Black Order, my opponent was so worried about the the Thanos shenanigans and brother, you know, uh, mothership and that I ended up getting both of the side hammers. <laughs> but then I was laughing because I was like, I am never going to get to play uh, Mothership this game because Thanos had a hammer, Corvus had a hammer, and Proxima had a hammer. And so like, it, 
there are situations where people are afraid of hammer or sorry, afraid of the teleport, but don't realize it's not actually alive because there's no good option for you to go in with it. Yeah. And I will, I mean, I'm, I will totally like let that attrition tactics card sit on my bench to scare you out of extracts and let me go get them for points. Oh yeah. Cause then the game, the game is about points. Yes. I will. I love any of the things that it's like the fear of me pulling this trigger will make you play in a way that's advantageous for me. I love that kind of stuff. Like I almost like don't like when I have to finally pull the trigger and be like, all right, you, you, you went for something crazy enough that I got, I gotta go. I gotta punish you for that. I can't just not go for it. You're forcing my hand, right? Yes. Which isn't necessarily bad, right? Because you go in and you do get into damage in. But you are in a situation where it's advantageous to use it. And so it doesn't make sense not to use it, essentially. Yeah. Uh, I suppose we could mention for Black Order the most important characters for summoning it. But generally, it's used to summon Corvus. I think now you could consider summoning, like, Power Swan at some point, Peace Swan. Um, and if you're playing like reality space Thanos, like obviously summoning Thanos is a, a very reasonable situation. But I think you kind of prefer it when you don't have to spend power on Thanos. I think any time that like you can have Proxima get to her second power or specifically get to like the three power where she can double move to a point or like move spear throw and then summon Corvus and then immediately activate Corvus. That's probably like the best case scenario. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I guess we could talk about why you use it or situations that make sense to use it. Um, yeah. Well, and- let's, let's go into um, how do you evaluate when is the right time to pull the trigger? And I know you're more brotherhood, but I'm still very yeah. curious because I think you've probably played this card more than I have. Uh, I mean, I played against plenty of Black Order, so I, <laughs> I can see it both ways, right? Um, if you're playing aggressively, right? Uh, when I play the card, like the two main triggers are, uh, let's say we're playing a single extract, right? And they've picked it up early, like, you know, second activation, maybe third activation in the round. And I know that that character is easy, within reason to kill. How about that? Yeah. And I go, okay, well, I know that getting rid of points from them scoring is always good. And dazing a character when you're playing attrition is also always good. So that's two points in favor of going into this character and blowing them up. So is it worth, it actually comes down to, is it worth blowing up a tactic card to make this happen? Um, like Brotherhood, oh, sorry, yeah, uh, like Black Order, sorry. Brotherhood is an easy time activating the card because someone usually throws something, you pass power out, so you can usually use it round one if you need to. Um, and you're essentially going for a very aggressive, I am trying to knock this character out quickly because I want them to drop the token. Uh, I may not necessarily want Maggie to pick up the token, depending on what it is. Like if it's Mutant Extremist, I don't actually want Maggie to pick it up. But putting it on the ground means they now have to run someone else over towards Magneto. And generally speaking, I'm going first, in which case, sweet, I have more characters to punch next turn. Yeah, I agree. Um, I try to look at it. Yeah, I agree. Like when it's a single extract, that makes the decision a whole lot easier, right? If you're yeah. playing alien ship or scrolls and they and your opponent gets it, like I'm totally all in, like go for it, pull the trigger. That character needs to die so that you can then take it from them. If you don't have a way with like Thanos or whatever or deception to like pull that character in anyway. Um, I do try to watch for situations like, does it net me more than one attack? 
I usually don't like playing the card if it's the difference between, oh, well, Corvus could walk and get like one attack on them. Or I could pull like, or using it, I get two attacks. Like that's not a, that's not a huge deal for me, especially if it's like, oh, well, I could walk and get one Glaive's Edge strike. Or I teleport, make one non-Glaive's Edge, and then maybe get to do Glaive's Edge on the second one, you know, barring crazy rolls. And that, yeah. like, that's a situation that unless that's like a really, really crucial kill, I would probably want to try to save it. Correct. Um, it is also about target priority sometimes. Like, even, yes. let's say we're playing a non-single extract, right? And we're playing, uh, let's say, Hammers or Montessi, you know, Legacy Wire, something like that. We're getting one doesn't necessarily win you the game, or it doesn't warp the game as, as much, I should say. Um, you then are looking for a how-do-you-not-lose scenario. And that's where Astrodam is, hey... You're looking for key, you're essentially looking for a situation to prevent yourself from losing the game. So then you want to use Asteroid M when they have two tokens, like two legacy fires on someone. They have two Montessis, right? Like something where they're going to be up on points on you and you try to pull it back to yourself. Or alternatively, you're looking for a character who will take it from you, right? That's like your Miles Morales. That's your black cat, your voodoos. Um, Quicksilver with, can I borrow that? Like characters that are going to take it from you and run away. Because once they start running away, you're having to chase them. And they generally speaking have a game plan for running away. Right. And Magneto's problem, for example, is that he's a short mover. So once you use Mother uh, Asteroid M, you're no longer able to catch up with that character. So you want to use the Asteroid M to go all in with your two attacks, your throws, do a bunch of damage, and essentially keep them from dominating the game. Yep, 100%. Um, I will say, one of like if I were to try to create some rules for myself, there's usually um, three things that I'm looking for, and that's like, does it change how a secure is scored? B, does it change how an extract is potentially going to be scored? And then am I potentially killing a leader or like a really crucial character to their plan? And if I can get two of those, I'm usually happy. If it's three, it's a no-brainer. Like... Miles holding um, a cube and holding down a secure by himself. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, I get the face. Yeah, that's like, all right, that's 100% I can pull the trigger. But now if it's something different, like say maybe it's a character that is a less optimal target for you and it's just a lizard just holding down a secure with no extract, then I'll probably pass and try to wait for a better moment. Cause it's like, okay, that's like their most durable character. That's it's not a character that threatens me that much. And they're not holding an extract like this. I feel like it's going to be really easy for me to find a better moment. Yeah. Um, actually, Lizard's a great example um, in the sense that his job is to not die. But effectively, he wants to pick up an extract. He wants to stand at a point and kind of sit there and be like, cool, you can't kill me. Good luck. I'm going to heal back. I might have exceptional healing, right? And so he's actually not a great character for Magneto to go into. Yep. Because you're just probably spend, you might kill him in two attacks in a throw, like maybe. But realistically, it's probably going to take you two activations, probably the Magneto and someone else to actually knock out Lizard uh, because of damage reduction, because for physical against your six physical, like, like he's just harder to burn down quickly. I agree. Um, I did want to point out there are situations where it's not as obvious of the VP swings that they can create. And so an example of that would be, say, you're playing Brotherhood 
and you were doing like alien ship or something. And then Toad just gets lucky and he gets the alien ship for you, uh, the power core, and he's kind of off on a side. And so you're already getting the VP lead. So the now the goal is protecting Toad. Mm-hmm. And so if there's an already activated voodoo, even if he's not on a secure. Oh, yeah. Fuck that guy. I might go for the kill there because getting Voodoo dazed before he can put out the token can create a large enough, like his potential to swing VPs with Voodoo is so significant that if you can get the daze on Voodoo right away, then even if he goes and like possesses Toad, gets the token back, uh, like gets the alien ship, but now he's already been dazed. So if you kill him, the Brother Daniel token goes away. Essentially, you want to use these cards in a way that forces your opponent into using that character early, right, where they don't want to. Like, who doesn't necessarily want to go early? What Hoodoo wants to do is go later in the turn, drop Brother Daniel, drop Brother Daniel, steal some tokens, be annoying, right, and, like, warp the game towards your – assumably, uh, presumably your opponent, right? Um but if you can force them to go, oh, I'm going to lose this character and I'll do something with them, you've won because you just won tempo. Yeah. And for you sure. force their hands. You, you force them to do something they didn't necessarily want to do, which in a, a limited activation game, you, like generally speaking, you probably have somewhere between four to six activations, right, each round. Uh, sometimes you have three, depending on how tall you're going and everything. But losing an activation is actually huge in this game. Yeah, it can be, it can, it can swing a turn completely. Um, obviously, when we first started planning this, um, we did not have this question. So um, this one, this part's gonna be a little bit of a surprise. But I was thinking about how much the loss of climbing gear affects how these cards are used, because both Magneto and Corvus loved climbing gear, like uh, practically yeah. essentials. Oh baby, uh, losing climbing gear, I can feel every time I play Brotherhood now. Is it the worst thing ever? No. But can I feel its loss? Absolutely. Does um, it change how these cards are played? It could. Generally, it doesn't. And the reason why is that, like you, we were talking about earlier, is that you want to activate this card, attack twice. If you're gonna put your, if you're gonna teleport yourself and put yourself in a position where you're gonna be pushed again almost immediately you better hope whatever you teleported to do went well for you. Because if it doesn't, you are exactly the same position you were earlier. That's that's a fair assessment. Um, I think one of the big takeaways that I would like listeners to have from this episode is probably if it's round one, try to think of how important that round one play is. Because if it's something where you can easily just like move your character up, maybe get one attack and one throw and then still be set up in a reasonable spot to like take them down at the beginning of round two and then save it. That's a huge deal. Maybe that doesn't matter as much if you're on demons, but that can matter a ton if you're playing on infinity formula or scoundrels or anywhere where suddenly your primary target may be really far away from you later on what are your thoughts on that danny uh yes absolutely because these cards are so game-changing that if you play the earlier you play them less effective they, they are essentially right because 
in my opinion, you try to save taxes card for the last possible moment you can use them. Um, because the later you have a card, the more altering of a game state it can actually be, right? Because either your opponent forgets about it, they're not including their math, they're, they're sort of tunnel vision, like, oh, this character has an extract, I need to get rid of them, they're cool. Uh, I'm not going to teleport and kill the character that picked that up because you now take some damage, we've got everything. And the thing is, round one players are nice. They are not end-all, be-alls in a game. And that's like really the takeaway with these cards is that you shouldn't go for round one plays just because it's available. You should be trying to achieve a goal. Well, I think one way to look at the card is if the card just read pay two power on two different characters, gain one attack. That's not that great of a card. It's fine. Like you still probably take it, but it's not insane. And it's like the same thing. I'd, I'd look at Wakanda forever and kind of like make this sort of analysis. But when you can play the card and be like, spend two power, move, you know, range five plus range four to this other location, give you two attacks against the most important character, and then do a two or three VP swing. That's like, that's so astronomically game changing. Whereas the, Oh, I, I did a range. I could basically, I got to move up range three or range four netted myself one additional tack, um, you know, and then it didn't even lead to a VP change. Cause we, we still neutraled out in the middle or something, you know, like yeah. that's the kind of how different that card can easily be. Uh, before we get too deep, I wanted to go back a second because I mentioned earlier talking about Mystique plays yep. and using Astrodem. Um, when I'm playing Mystique, I generally have one five threat character, like a Juggernaut. I have a Scarlet Witch, like someone who is uh, I'm putting in because I have cheap other characters to, to make my core, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, what I'm doing with those characters, what I'm thinking of those characters is Juggernaut is annoying. Right, like he can be a jerk, he can move around a lot and everything, but if he can teleport and then also move, he can fly across the board, right? Like literally be across the board, push himself, push himself, move, punch someone on the opposite corner of the board. You can have a Scarlet Witch teleport over, get two attacks, do some damage and everything. And so Mystique, generally what I'm trying to do is get up on VPs, force my opponent to come into me, and then use Asteroid M to dictate battle lines, effectively. It's like, yeah, oh, my opponent's going heavy on my left side. Cool. I'm going to deal with what's going on, on the right side as quickly as I can and try to get that done by round three. And then Asteroid M over it and have all of my forces leave my Brotherhood token, you know, on my back right B. And then have Misty go to my top right B. And then I'm dealing with everything on my back left. Right. Like, sure, they have their whole forces. They're pushing me. I probably take some damage. I probably have some days characters or whatever. But now all of my forces are here and they have nothing to do with Mystique on the right side. And Mystique is in her prime when people have to go into her. She's like, cool. You probably can't shoot me. I'm now going to wrap right into you or blow up terrain. And you <laughs> like you, you want to add martial arts to me? Sure. That's fine. Let's go for it. And she's just running back and forth. Like Mystique loves uh, pay to flips where she can just run back and forth flipping to objectives <laughs> and you have to like chase her around. She's like, she's so obnoxious all to deal day, with. It. <laughs> like all day. <laughs> uh, and so I wanted to make sure to get that out of, of the more passive way of playing it is essentially understanding that when you're playing on a B or a D uh, or even an F, right, really, is that 
generally speaking, there is, on your left or your right side of the board, more actions happening on one side of that table because generally speaking, people are going to kind of stack up on one side and you have to play a little more, I guess, passively on that side and not be taking a bunch of hits because all you're doing is trying to not lose in that side and you're trying to start dictating the battle lines because ideally, if your five threat was on the right side of the board, they've done a bunch of work, they have a lot of power, they teleport over, they're going to go ham. Yep. Right? Like, they're just going to go nuts and just start throwing stuff, they start doing a bunch of attacks, start doing spenders, just doing everything they can to alternate the battle state at this point when your opponent didn't necessarily expect your, you know, your power piece to be there. Yeah. I, I love every, every, well, love or hate playing against that. One of the two. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to get in a little some of the strategies that could potentially lure out the card. Um, and so, for example, when I was at Adepticon, my one Black Order game, after we played it, I kind of gave him a suggestion. I was like, well, what I would have done is put like lizard. So we were playing Extremist Console and um, Hammers. And I said, why don't you do uh, Mystique, or sorry, not Mystique, but Mysterio on one D and then Lizard on the other as your kind of your first two activations. Give me like the two most obnoxious three threat characters to try to deal with to see if you can bait me into one of those suboptimal plays. Start there. Always start with the most obnoxious to see if um, to see if I would go for it. Um, do you have any other specific bait plays that you think are worth mentioning? This is where like your two threats going early. Like if you're going against like uh, a black order or a brother character, your two threats, generally speaking, they're meant to take a daze at some point. Right. Yeah. And if they want to spend their fancy character, their eight pointers or six pointers or five pointers punching a two threat, you're actually happy about that. Right. In the long run, because, yes, they can probably knock out that character relatively quickly, but they're doing it against a character that ultimately is a very nominal part of your list. Right. And all your power pieces, all your other pieces are then able to react to that. You're cool. You punch this character. Maybe you hit Toad. He'd be able to hop away. Right. And, And that's great or whatever. Or let's say you knock them out. Well, round two. Right. Are they going after your two threat again, or are they now worried about what your other pieces have done on the other side of the board? Right, and now yeah. your two threat is running around doing dumb stuff, right? Because like what I love about Toad, about Bullseye, is like cool, you punched him. Do you want to waste time punching them again, or yeah, do you want to no extract? <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> sure, like that's great. Uh, your your eight threat punched my two threat. Go for it, bud. <laughs> <laughs> um. So with that in mind, I think. Obviously, if you're concerned about these sort of plays, I think playing the wide extracts like cubes and spider infected can be a huge deal because every time one of these characters go after them, right, then now if they if they if they daze a character and get a cube, now they can't actually asteroid M to another location. Yep. Um, It's about essentially you want them to trade unfavorably, right? Uh, it's like magic a little bit, is that you want them to spend more resources into dealing with your characters than you're spending to deal with their characters. And if they spend a tactics card to blow up a two threat, a three threat, you're happy with that, right? Because they're probably sending at least a five threat into you. Um, and then now you know where that character is going to be. And so either you can ignore that character or you can deal with that character and try to focus all of your energy into dealing with that character at that point. Yep, I agree with all of that. 
Um, and obviously, I mean, these are usually semi-attack focused. So the more that you can use these to uh, use abilities to spread out attacks, like bodyguard, sacrifice, heroes for hire, try to um, try to manipulate the efficiency of like how much they're getting out of this. Because as we said, if you only get to do it and then get one attack in, then it's not really that great of a use of a card. And so if it's something where um, you can, say, sacrifice the attack onto someone that can potentially back up or get to a bodyguard position. Um, say maybe you sacrifice to um, Scourge, right? And then Scourge gets to move forward and now he's, you know, gets so aggressive in and now he's set up for his taunt ability too. Like when you can set it up to like kind of deny the very thing that they were using the card for, that's huge. Yeah, like this is where exactly what you're saying. Your bodyguard sacrifice these cards that let you distribute damage across multiple characters. Because the last thing you want to do when you're using your Texas card is not knock out a character. Yeah, <laughs> right. That is like a doomsday scenario where you're like, oh, I just spent a bunch of power, I punched someone, and they didn't die. This is bad for me. Yeah, it it's it gets real real rough, but. If you can heroes for hire the attack and then throw the character afterwards, oh, oh my god. Yeah, like, if you heroes for hire, he punches someone, heroes for hire, you throw him away, he can't attack a second time, he's the saddest person on the planet. Oh, yeah, it's so rough. <laughs> but, all right, well, Danny, I feel like we got all of the essentials out there. Do you feel like we nailed all the key points? Yeah, absolutely. All right, well... Listeners, I hope you enjoyed um, the first uh, Danny and Omnis breakdown, the OP breakdown. And I'm going to say the most OP thing that you can do is have Juggernauts interact with a Medman, then move, interact with another Madman, and then Asteroid M to the other side of the board, interact, and then move again and interact again. Maybe even slide and punch. Who knows? But... If you get to use Juggernaut and Asteroid M to interact with four madmen, you're my hero. 100%.